what is up my dudes welcome back to yet another episode of olympia oddities so i went to squatch fest again this year squatch fest 2020 loved it it was so much fun it was great i got this awesome don't stop believing a uh, sticker with bigfoot on it for my car and this really cool it's like a dino head and it says clever girl on it it's a jurassic park pen i walked up i saw it i picked it up the guy was like oh i only brought one of those for this entire weekend and i was like ah shut up and take my money i guess i love it so I got that and I'm actually like stoked about it and stoked to put it on my jacket. So, and I went on Friday, so I got to see the guys from Mountain Monsters and whoo, that was wild. So <laughs> I've only seen a couple episodes of that show, but it's great. It's a high quality entertainment. It's a bunch of hillbillies that are like possibly drunk, uh, waving guns around at night, always at night. You got to hunt cryptids at night, I guess. And just, like, being like, what was that over there? And they build these, like, giant elaborate traps for the cryptid. I just love the fact of, like, trying to get the dog man or, like, a lizard demon man. I'm trying to think of, like, more cryptids from that area that they named. But honestly, I was in such a state of amazement that I it, I don't even remember most of it. <laughs> but anyways... I've been in the southern part of Washington a lot recently, and something popped up on Google Maps when I was down there that reminded me of the story. Sovie Island. So, if you're a local to the area, you probably have a pretty good idea of who I'm covering just based on that name. You also might have already come to your conclusion on what might have happened. I've had today's topic on my list for a while, so I decided that I'd better just get around to covering it. Today's episode is about the disappearance of Kyron Horman. If you're sensitive to stuff involving children, feel free to skip, skip this one, but I won't be going into any sort of graphic detail about really anything in this episode. I'm just going to present what happened and then some, you know, possible explanations for what might have happened to Kyron. Kyron Horman was born September 9th, 2002 in Portland, Oregon. Desiree Young, his mother, and his father, Kane Horman, had divorced eight months into Desiree's pregnancy, and they shared joint custody until the age of two, when health problems involving her kidneys kept Desiree from caring for him. Desiree went to Canada to receive medical treatment, and Kane then got full custody of his son, and Kyron moved into his home and began living there full-time. Desiree returned from Canada two months later and moved in with her parents to get back on her feet financially after having $30,000 due in uh, medical bills. She never attempted to regain custody of Kyron, but remained an active and involved part of his life. She would watch him every other weekend with her new husband, a Medford police detective named Tony Young. During this divorce, Kane met Terry Moulton, a friend of Desiree's. She was a substitute teacher from Roseburg, Oregon, and helped Kane out with childcare. She quickly moved into the home as well. She also brought her son from her first marriage, James, who was 16 at the time. James would later move out and live with some other relatives. She became pregnant, and in December of 2008, she gave birth to her and Kane's daughter, Kiara. In April of 2009, Kane er, and Terry got married in Hawaii. Friends and, families of the, friends and family of the Hormans described them as loving and a tight-knit family. They went bowling, visited Disney World, and went to the zoo. All normal family stuff. Terry enrolled the kids in swimming lessons and volunteered at Kyron's school. They seemed like a completely normal, happy family. And they were until the morning of June 4th, 2010. Terry arrived at the school with Kyron and Kiara a little after 8 a.m. that morning. 
There was a science fair going on, and it was one of those field day type days, so after the science fair, there was a talent show instead of regular classes. Kyron was supposed to participate in both the science fair and the talent show that day. At around 8.15, they chatted with Gina Zimmerman, president of the school's PTA, in front of Kyron's exhibit on the red-eyed tree frog. Terry snapped a picture of him smiling next to it. This was common for her, and she shared pictures and updates about Kyron pretty often on her Facebook page. They also, um, at this point, dropped his backpack and I think his jacket off in his classroom and saw his teacher. They walked around the science fair, and at 8.45, Terry watched Kyron walk off towards his classroom. Uh... At around 9, another student claimed to have seen him in the hallway later. The students stopped by their classrooms before the talent show, and Kyron's teacher noticed him missing, so he was marked absent. Now, for some reason, the school never made a phone call home about his absence, which I think is pretty weird, because any time that I would uh, skip class in high school, like, within, like, the first 10 minutes, it seemed, my mom would be texting me and, like, telling me to go to class, you know? Like, my par- I just remember my parents being quickly informed whenever I was not where I was supposed to be so it's really bizarre that this like fell through the cracks like that and the school definitely seems like they have to take a little bit of responsibility for what happened to Kyron um some think that this is because Terry had recently given Kyron's teacher some paperwork that she wanted to return to his doctor and had mentioned him having a doctor's appointment coming up so some people think that the teacher maybe thought that, like, oh, maybe they just stopped by for the science fair and then today was the day that he had the doctor's appointment. And, you know, like, can't blame a teacher for getting things mixed up. They're taking care of, like, what, freaking 30 kids every day? Jesus. <laughs> but, um, Terry had noticed some small instances of abnormal behavior, like Kyron staring off into space and walking into the room and back out like he'd forgotten what he came in for. And, um, that's what people think that the doctor's appointment was for. So after she left, Terry went on with her day, stopping at one Fred Myers and then going to another when the first one didn't have the medicine she was looking for. Um, her daughter Kiara had an ear infection, so she was looking for some ear infection medication. At 10.10, she left the second store and began driving around aimlessly, waiting for the meds and the motion of the car to soothe her daughter until around 11.39. She then stopped by the gym, putting Kiara into the gym daycare while working out. She ran into a friend and chatted for a while. Later, the friend would recall that Terry seemed absolutely normal and nothing stood out to weird stood out as weird to her about their interaction. They were both or they were at the gym until about twelve forty and then back at home by twelve or one twenty one when Terry posted photos of Kyron at the science fair on Facebook. Terry, Kane, and Kiara walked to the bus to meet Kyron as a family at three thirty. However, when the doors opened, the bus driver explained that Kyron had not gotten on the bus that day. He suggested that they call the school for more information. Terry then called the school's secretary, who confirmed that he had been marked absent and that no one had seen him since that morning. When the secretary realized that the boy was missing, she notified the police via a phone call at 3.46. Officers from the Portland Police Bureau and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office arrived at Skyline School and the home of the Hormans at 4.43. At 5.30, a message to the parents of other Skyline students is relayed, simply stating, Kyron Horman did not arrive at home today. At 7 p.m., Multnomah County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant Lee Gawson informed the county's on-call coordinator for search and rescue efforts that a formal missing persons search had to begin. Around this time, Sheriff Dan Stanton called the FBI to let them know of Kyron's disappearance. 
Uh, searchers arrived at the school a little after eight. A picture of Kyron was emailed to the local TV stations and to the Oregonian. At 10.30 p.m., the officers announced that they had completed their search of the school. They looked in classrooms, storage areas, crawl spaces, and outbuildings, and found no trace of Kyron. Searchers also looked in the Hormans' residence and found nothing. The next morning, the sheriff's office contacted Pacific Northwest Search and Rescue to join the group of searchers. When they arrived at the site, 60 to 70 people were already there. A tip line was also created later on in the morning. The sheriff's office held a press conference at noon, telling everyone that it was still a missing persons case and not a criminal investigation. The school district informed parents and students that had been at the school that day that Kyron went missing to meet on Sunday at the school to meet with the police. Two more press conferences happened that evening, and they announced that the National Guard and FBI had joined the search. The search and rescue groups completed a grid search of the area around the school, but nothing turned up. That Sunday, June 6th, the FBI brought in a profiler to help them create a profile of Kyron. 300 students and parents arrived at Skyline to meet with 50 officers. Interviews ran from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. that evening. Kyron's relatives posted missing posters of him with this description, 3 feet 8 inches tall, 50 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair, last seen wearing black cargo pants, white socks, and worn black Skechers tennis shoes with orange trim. The superintendent of Portland Public Schools, Carol Smith, had a press conference to cover what safety measures the school would be using in the aftermath of this tragedy, which they should have because they, were de they definitely played a role in this case. At 9 p.m., Multnomah County Sheriff's Office elevated Kyron's disappearance to a missing endangered child's case. Monday morning, 18 search and rescue teams worked to sweep the area again. Deputies went to the surrounding neighborhoods and passed out flyers and took down license plate numbers of cars going down the road past the school. At 8.45, with counselors on site, classes started up again and kids started arriving at the school. The searchers continued looking on Tuesday, and the police did a briefing for the public. A Facebook page called Missing Kyron Horman announced the creation of a reward fund that night. The searchers would look for Kyron for more than 10 days, and included over 1,300 people from Oregon, Washington, and California. It would end up being the largest search for a missing person in Oregon's history. The sheriff's office would actually end up having to turn down donations because of the huge amounts of food, water, and other supplies people in the community had donated. Which is awesome. Like, I think it's the Mr. Rogers quote where it says, like, in times of tragedy, always look for the helpers. That Wednesday, FBI spokeswoman Ann Steele explained that the Horman family would not be speaking with the media because they didn't think it was the, in the best interest of finding Kyron. At noon, Multnomah County Sheriff's Captain Mike Schultz read a statement from the family that urged people to search their cars, outbuildings, sheds, and to check in with their neighbors or friends who may be on vacation or out of town. They thanked everyone for their support and ended the statement with this quote, Their objective is to keep the focus on Chiron and not about anything else. The search parties expanded their search to Sovie Island, which is about six miles away from the school, but still didn't find a single trace of Chiron. That Sunday, June 13th, the sheriff's office announced that the search had ended and Kyron's case was now officially a criminal investigation. The following day, search and rescue divers were sent to Sovi Island, where they searched the banks of the Multnomah Channel near the Sovi Island Bridge. Sovi Island was focused on a, as a search area because Terry's cell phone had pinged off a tower near the island that day. 
it's often incorrectly reported that the tower was on the island, but there's no cell phone tower on Soviet island. There's also only one bridge that allows access to and from the island, and when police reviewed the camera footage from that day, Terry's vehicle was never seen going to or leaving the island that day. The 15th was the final day of classes at Skyline, and while students were finishing up their school day and headed into summer vacation, the sheriff's office searched a pond near the Horman's property. Neither one of these searches would turn up any remains or any hint of where Kyron may have gone. Desiree and Kane appeared on four network morning shows to talk about Kyron. Desiree stated at one point, it's like a portal opened up in the school and Kyron just vanished into it. The next day, June 25th, would bring a huge twist into the case and change the media and public's view of the Hormans. Up until this point, they had been supporting each other and were extremely focused on finding Kyron and nothing else. At 5.17, the first of two calls to 911 from the Horman residence would come through. The first call was about a threat and a sheriff's deputy responded to the address. At 11.39 p.m., the second call was made. This one was about a custody dispute. Kane moved out of the home uh, with his and Terry's daughter, Kiara, on this day. And why did he do that? Because the police had told him that Terry tried to hire a hitman to kill him. The Horman's groundskeeper, Rodolfo Sanchez, had said that seven months before Kyron's disappearance, Terry had offered him a large amount of money to kill Kane. Attempting to catch Terry, the police set up a sting. They had Rodolfo go to Terry's house wearing a wire and demand $10,000 from her as payment. She ended up calling 911 on him once he arrived and started demanding the money. It was also later revealed that the DA had told Rodolfo if he didn't participate in the, in the sting and provide testimony that his family would be deported, which is incredibly fucked. Like, you know, so this entire detail I, makes me a little like, you know, it's like, well, if he didn't participate and go along with what they said, his entire family was going to be sent away. You know, he'll say whatever you want at that point. You know, it's just kind of like a very shitty thing that they did and it makes that whole thing it's like i don't know if she tried to hire a hitman because the sting was like coerced you know it's very odd another detail that makes me skeptical about this is that rodolfo didn't really speak much english and terry didn't really speak much spanish so they often had issues communicating rodolfo also said that terry had taken him to a cafe to discuss the hit and like, okay, so I've had to spend some like time in weird headspaces thinking about this case and just being like, well, if I was going to hire someone to murder my husband, which I don't have, like, just so don't get worried. Um, I don't think I'd go to a cafe to discuss it. I think that's like a living room conversation, possibly a car conversation. I just can't see myself in the middle of a Portland cafe trying to get some, but you know, also people who hire hitmen, not the smartest so i don't i don't really know i don't really know about that that's what i found while looking into it though so even though it seems like she might not have actually tried to hire a hitman the damage was done kane believed that the, what the cops had told him and he and kiara were gone on the 28th he filed for divorce and a restraining order against terry the divorce was granted and terry was allowed supervised visitations with kiara okay so she also began texting, or sexting, I should say, ooh, one of Kane's friends during this time, and I don't want to read them. They've read them on other podcasts. I just don't feel like reading sex to you guys, sorry. 
Um, if you're interested in them, when they were on Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil reads some of these texts, and the man does it better than I could ever dream of, so go watch that, it's on YouTube. She also made several Facebook posts around this time that some found suspicious, like of her going to the gym, which is, you know, another one of those things where, like, when something traumatic happens, people often have expectations for how you're supposed to react to something, and a lot of the time, the way that people, like, grieve or, you know, deal with a stressful, traumatic time is, like, not in the way that you would expect. Like, personally, me, the day that my mom died, I had plans to go to the county fair with one of my friends. And I went to the fair with one of my friends. And it was weird. And looking back, I'm like, wow, I really went to the fair right after that happened. But, like, in that moment, it was like, yeah, I'm supposed to go to the fair. I have, you know, it was weird. It was just on my brain was like on the basic autopilot of just like, I have this obligation and I'm going to go do this thing. All right. Now that I've totally derailed, um, Terry also failed two polygraphs at this time, even though, you know, I've talked about this before. Polygraphs are junk science and unreliable, but some people put weight into them. And the public media and Kane and Desiree all set their sights on her as a possible suspect. In July of 2010, a grand jury subpoenaed some of Terry's friends, including a woman named Dee Dee Spicer. Spiker? Spicer. She went through three hours of questioning and allowed officers to search her car and property. Interestingly, on the day of Kyron's disappearance, Dee Dee had left her job for a period of about 90 minutes. She was working in the garden of a homeowner she worked for when she left at around 1130. Uh, Desiree Young, Kane Horman, and the principal of Skyline School were also subpoenaed and testified in front of the grand jury. In August of 2010, officers announced that they were looking for an individual that two witnesses had described in Terry's truck the morning of the disappearance. The identity of that second person, if he or she existed, could be critical in determining what happened to Kyron after 9 a.m. on June 4th, said Bruce McCain, former sheriff for the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. To this day, the identity of the second person in the truck, or if there was a second person in the truck, remains unknown. On June 1st, 2012, Desiree Young filed a lawsuit against Terry Horman, claiming that she was responsible for the disappearance of Kyron. Desiree was seeking $10 million in damages from Terry. During this lawsuit, Dee Dee Spiker denied answering 142 questions about the events during a deposition. The questions included ones about her movements the day of the disappearance, whether or not she recognized Kyron from a photo, and whether or not she knew Kane or had any contact with Terry on that day. It was later revealed that she had done this because she was, like, committing employment fraud and has since passed a polygraph and has cooperated with police in all of their questioning because they gave her, like, immunity to being arrested for committing unemployment fraud. Very bizarre. Like I said, this case is wild and has taken up so much of my mind. I'll be at, like, the gas station getting a Dr. Pepper, like, deep in thought about did Didi have a part in this, you know? So on July 30th, Desiree dropped the lawsuit against Terry, fearing that it would interfere with the ongoing police investigation. In 2016, Terry, Desiree, and Kane all appeared on Dr. Phil. Good old Dr. Phil. Desiree and Kane are fully convinced that Terry is responsible for Kyron's disappearance, citing emails that they have seen where Terry complained about Kyron and said some pretty nasty things about him. Unfortunately, these emails aren't public, so I have no idea what the contents of them are or if they even exist. You know, we kind of have to take Kane and Desiree's word 
for them existing and what exactly they say. Terry denied having any involvement in his disappearance and stated again that she thought he might have been kidnapped, stating that there was a man in a white pickup truck, a Ford, parked on Highway 30 at the 7-Eleven near the school. He was acting very strangely and he was addressed by one of the employees because he had been pacing back and forth in front of the 7-Eleven for about an hour. <sighs> a weird man pacing back and forth in front of a 7-Eleven in Portland, Oregon? Never heard of that. Like, I'm sorry, like, that's a very normal thing to see <laughs> like i don't know maybe to me i just i feel like i've seen somebody being weird outside of a gas station so often but i can also see from her point of view you know if she didn't do it and her kid is actually missing that it's like that is a little bizarre and should probably be looked into when there's you know a missing child you want to explore every opportunity and every little missed lead you think might be out there on Dr. Phil, she also explained that she had failed the polygraph test because she's deaf in her left ear and couldn't see the polygrapher's lips, so she couldn't understand the question. She also said that several of the questions had no answer that was going to make her pass the test, like if Kyron was in the truck with her that morning. She said that when they were on the way to school, he was, but not when they left the school. But technically, he had been in the truck with her, so she felt like some of the questions were kind of, like, impossible to answer questions. Um, after the Dr. Phil appearance, Terry had several run-ins with the law. She was arrested in California after stealing a gun from her roommate. She posted bail and was released. Then, a few days before Christmas, she was arrested for stealing a car and posted bail again. The stolen car charge would later be dropped. Um, in June of 2018, Desiree posted the following message on her Facebook. Stay tuned. Something big is coming. I promise you. The announcement ended up being a book she wrote titled... Love You Forever, The Search for Kyron Horman. Young said that any proceeds from the book would be donated to a missing children's nonprofit. So, what do I think happened to Kyron? I have no idea. I'm honestly not sure at all. If you're in the camp that thinks Terry is guilty, I get it. She was the last person to see Kyron that day. Her recent behavior has been erratic at best. And that chunk of time where she claimed she was just aimlessly driving with her daughter to get her to go to sleep is a little suspicious and is unaccounted for time. Stranger child abductions are rare, and on average, 350 people under the age of 21 have been kidnapped per year in the United States since 2010. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children said that stranger abductions most often occur when the child is headed to or from school. That's not to say that stranger abductions never happen, though, or that strangers have never taken a child from their school. In January of 2016, a five-year-old girl from Pennsylvania was taken from school less than five minutes after her mother dropped her off. The woman was wearing something that covered her face, I guess, so her face was covered and she went up to talk to the girl's uh, teacher and she said that she was the girl's mom and she was going to take her to breakfast and the teacher just let the girl go, so she let her down the hall and out of the school. Luckily, the girl was found in a nearby park and survived and I think is fine. Uh, I think that the thing that confuses me the most is why Terry would take Kyron to school at all in the first place if she was planning on harming him. If she did take him back to the truck, it's amazing that not a single person or parent, you know, parent or student there at the science fair even noticed. Another detail that sticks out to me is how could have Terry known that the school would fail on safety procedures so bad? She had no way of knowing that the school would fail to contact Desiree or Kane, that Kyron was just missing. You know, like when she was, you know, she could have been at the first Fred Meyer, like in the process of, you know, doing something to him, harming him. 
And they could have called, you know, Kane, and the entire thing would have blown up right there. But, on the other hand, the school was complete chaos that morning, with adult volunteers and kids everywhere. Terry, or a stranger who took Kyron, could have used all the commotion to cover up leaving with him. If she did something, and a stranger abduction was her plan all along to cover it up, why not just wait until summer vacation and say that someone had picked him up out of the yard or walking down the street? Terry's recent behavior with the gun and car theft are disturbing, all things considered, but it also gives me pause. Do we really know how any of us would act or cope if all of a sudden our stepson was gone, our husband left us and took our daughter, and the entire population of Oregon thinks that you murdered the child you were responsible for the care of? You know, and I don't know if Terry's innocent or not, but if she is, that really sucks for her with <laughs> a lot of the things people are saying online, people saying really nasty things, and it's like, if she did it, yeah, she deserves all that. If she didn't do it, whew, that's rough. If doing something to Kyron was Terry's attempt at hurting Kane because of marriage issues, she did a fantastic job of ruining her own life. And what about that student who had claimed to see Kyron in the hallway after Terry had already left? Was he simply mistaken and misremembering things, or did he really see him? If he did, that means that Terry couldn't have acted alone because she wasn't physically there anymore. She would have had to have someone to help her. While I was researching this case, something else stood out that made me pause. A picture Terry had posted on Facebook of Kyron's class, with no one notable exception. Kyron wasn't in the picture. Terry's caption underneath explained that Kyron had wandered off to the bathroom without telling anyone. Is it possible that Kyron could have wandered off on this day? His family described him as timid and not prone to going off by himself, but Terry's own caption on Facebook kind of proves otherwise. The area around the school is heavily wooded, with a creek running through the back. I wonder if he could have wandered off into the woods and either fallen into the creek or just ended up in a location that obscured his body. I almost even wonder if he could still be in the school somewhere. I know that that's a reach, but, like, stranger things have happened. I don't know if he wandered off, was taken by a stranger, or if Terry Horman harmed him, with or without the help of an accomplice. All I know at the end of the day is that Kyron Horman is still missing, and his family deserves closure. He would be 17 years old this year. I'll be posting the age-progressed photo that was released of him on the pod's Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, leave a positive review, tell a friend, or follow the Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for the pod, uh, Olymp at Olympia Oddities Podcast. My personal Instagram is at Trista Jean, and my Twitter is at MKUlta underscore. Until next time, friends.